are continuing our kind of journey through Philippians. And again, the, the focus here is on the key to abiding joy. And we've talked about you know, different things that, that Paul has, has, um, has helped kind of give us teaching on, give us examples of, of joy and, and why we can have you know, joy in this world no matter what the circumstance, no matter what we face. And so, uh, you know, bef- before we start today, you know, I, um, I'm going to be careful how I say this. I like to watch a show called Pawn Stars. Pawn Stars. Pawn Stars. And maybe you like this show too. Um, and they, you know, people come in and they bring things like this, this flintlock pistol. And they, and they, some, you know, they think it's worth a lot of money. And sometimes it is. And they always bring in experts to talk about it and everything. Well, the person who brought this one in thought it was worth $2,500. Well, when the expert came in, immediately recognized this was not a revolutionary war era flintlock. Instead, it was a um, reproduction made in the past couple decades. So his ideas of $2,500 gone out the door. There was another one that came on and they, they thought they had a John Lennon doodles. So they thought there were doodles that John Lennon had, had drawn. And of course, again, people who are Beatles fans, this would be worth a lot of money. So the guy thought like, uh, you know, this, they you know, get $20,000 for this. Well, when the, the guy on there, Rick, looked at it, at first he thought, oh, it's kind of neat. And then when he flipped it over, he saw printed on the back, Kodak. And the problem was is that Kodak wasn't around when John Lennon would have drawn this. So this was obviously a fake too. So instead of $20,000, you basically had a ruined piece of paper that somebody scribbled on. And then there was a, a, a third one. And this one was thought to be this really like millions of year old, like kind of like a spider-looking thing in, um, in amber. And the person thought, oh, $50,000. I'm going to get $50,000 for this. And the, the, they, you know, they looked at it. They weren't sure. The expert actually told them, yeah, I don't really think this is legit. But the guy didn't believe them. So they said, we can send this away to have it inspected by this institute. And the guy said, fine but it'll cost you $200. So he sent it away, paid the $200, came back. Turns out all that red stuff, it's just plastic. Um, And so not only did he not get $50,000, he was out $200. You see, the thing about these things is that they, they look real. And sometimes people were told stories about how this was acquired. And so, you know, it, it, it feels real. It, it's like, you know, it, there seems to be like, this got to be right. And when you're getting up to the twenty dollars to $50,000, it's like you're already thinking about, you know, you're already thinking about what would happen if, if you won. It's like my wife has already planned multiple times in our lives how we will spend the money we win from Safeway's Monopoly game. Um, we've, we've never won, but she has a plan, just in case. 
But people are like thinking like this, you know, this is, this is a lot of money. How am I going to use it? How is it going to change my life? That's the thing about what's sometimes out there, this, this fake gospel, this false gospel. If the false gospel looked nothing like the true gospel, no problem. You wouldn't, you wouldn't believe it. You know, when I was a kid, I mean, I was like, you know, one of the things I loved was, you know, Daniel Boone and all those kind of things. And so, you know, I, I always wanted like one of those flintlock, you know, rifles or pistol that's, you know, and, and I got one when I was a kid, you know, for a birthday or Christmas, but it was clearly a toy. It wasn't anything like it. Nobody, you know, would buy this because it looked like the kind, you know, you put the cap in and, you know, and then they pack and it makes that big loud, you know, and no matter how much you tried to put extra little caps in there with more gunpowder, still couldn't get the kind of kick you really wanted. But still, it was kind of cool. But nobody would mistake that for a Revolutionary War era flintlock rifle. It, it's going to look real. It's going to feel real. But it's still not the gospel. Not the true gospel. It's going to use the same words. Might even have some of the same activities and all. And you, you might like be thinking, like, well, how do I know? How do I know? Well, this is how you know. The same way like if some of these treasures had, had actually been worth as much as, as they were worth, you know, somebody with $50,000 in their pocket, well, you know what? Their, their lives would be a little different. How do you know you are not following the fake gospel? Because the Bible says your life will be changed. You will not be the same person you were before. And you will know there's a difference, even if people around you can't figure it out yet, because you're just got layers and layers of, you know, old flesh, you know, and layers and layers of bad habits and, and terrible attitudes and not knowing. But you know that you've been changed. And you know God is working from the inside his way up to trying to, you know, get rid of all that other stuff. You know you've been changed. You see, a lot of people want the fake gospel because the fake gospel will save you, at least in their minds. But the fake gospel leaves you alone. It doesn't necessarily change you. Changing is optional. And that's... that's you know, that, that's a very, like, that's a, that's a nice thing to believe. That's a good religion to have. You know, I'm, I'm saved from all the mistakes I make in this life, but I'm free to continue to make all the mistakes I make in this life. It's a nice, nice, safe gospel. But this is saying that the true gospel is that your life will be changed. And your life will be changed in, in very like, specific ways. The Bible is not like vague about this. 
And ultimately we know it's this idea that you are going to become more like Christ. But what is that? What is that? What does that feel like? We're going to look at one of the most important things that Paul puts out there for us of knowing how our life has changed. You know that when this is done, you will know that if this is something that's in your experience, then you can, you can know. You, you're following the true gospel. And so, we come back to Philippians. And, and Philippians, Paul again, is, he's under house arrest. He's, he's awaiting trial before you know, what historians call is a very crazy person. A person who could do incredibly horrific and evil things. And he's going to await trial to see this person called the emperor. And he, and he doesn't want to be there in a way. He wants to be out there spreading the gospel. He wants to be out there strengthening the churches. But here he is, and he can't stop talking about joy. He can't stop talking about rejoice. He can't stop being like so positive in so many ways. But what we find throughout the letter, I hope as you're reading the letter, you realize it's not a stupid joy. It's not an ignorant joy. It's not a joy that comes from like, you know, um, no problems here. I'm not dead yet. You know, must be good. No, he knows, he knows what he's facing. He's looking at this situation. He sees the danger. He knows the possibilities. And yet he still has joy. He doesn't have joy because he's lying to himself or always trying to see this, you know, the sunny side of the street. He's, he knows. And yet he still has joy. And so he comes to this in chapter 3 where he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. So he's, he's warning them now. He's telling them, he's saying, he's saying look, there's going to be these these false teachers, and most, most scholars believe the false teachers are what were called the Judaizers. And Judaizers were people who prob- could very well have been Pharisees that, that were kind of converted to Christianity or at least um, you know, wanted to join the Christians. And we know a lot of Pharisees did want to join the Christians, um, especially after the resurrection. But some of them wanted to join the Christians but didn't want to let go of all that, that, they, that they knew from being a Pharisee and from, being, from their Jewish upbringing. And, and Paul doesn't condemn that. He, he's, he's Jewish himself. He doesn't condemn it. But the problem is, is that they want to get all of the Gentile Christians to conform. And so Paul is saying, look out. And we don't know why he's saying look out. We don't know. We're, we're pretty confident 
it's not already a problem in the church at, in Philippi. But if you remember when we were talking about the church at Philippi, we knew there wasn't a large Jewish population in Philippi. So this church has probably existed for a while without having these, these Judaizers come in. But Paul knows that wherever he's gone, they've showed up. And now that he knows he's in prison and he cannot get out, that more and more people are going to the same places he went and going to the same churches and trying to take advantage of the situation. Some of them are teaching the true gospel. Some are teaching this false gospel. And, you know, I don't have time. We, we, We... we talk about these things on Wednesday night and on Monday night. I don't have time to go into all of it this morning, but, but he's using some pretty strong language. And the, the language is very, um, it's almost what you would call like ironic. He's, he's calling them, them dogs. And by calling them dogs, he's not using it the way we use the word dog. He's the, the Jewish people did use that word negatively because dogs would, they weren't like, I mean, some people I'm sure had pets, but for the most part, the, what you thought about the dog was dogs running through the city. And dogs actually served a useful function in those cities. They would go and eat the trash, you know, and things like that. Uh, things we get mad at our dogs for doing. The dog, your dog could just say, I'm just doing my job. You know, that I would, that everybody would have thought, that's awesome, these dogs are, are going through the trash. But th- that's what they looked at them as, and they were, you know, running packs and things like that. And so the, it was a negative term, but, but he's, he's talking about what the Jewish people would, would do is they would use dog in place of Gentile. And it had more meaning than that, but for for our you know purposes, he's you know that's what that that's the main meaning that we can look at. So Paul is actually doing something kind of ironic. He's using that negative term that the Judaizers would have used against the Gentiles. He's calling them that. So you can guess that they probably don't like him. And it really kind of centers, each one of these, you know, centers on, on different things. And, and this particular one, you know, this, this idea of, of living like dogs, living like Gentiles, he's, he's giving the idea that, that, you know, you Judaizers give the appearance of being good and you do good deeds, but they don't come from the right heart. The second thing when he says evildoers, that word doers, it, it, Paul uses the word doers almost always to refer to, to Christians who are ministering to one another. And so he's using that word, and then he's putting on, front of it, on the front of it evil. And the same thing, it's like, you appear to be ministering. You appear to be caring. You appear to even be holy, but you're not. And it's not because of what you appear or what you're doing. It's because of the condition of your heart. And then finally, he uses that word mutilators. 
And again, that word has, has lots of uh, you know, meaning for us, that not necessarily for Paul. What he's obviously referring to is circumcision, and he makes that point in the very next verse. He says, we are the circumcision. But he's saying you're mutilators of the flesh because you are, you're, you're circumcising people and it's not having any effect. It's not, from, from a Christian standpoint, it's not having any effect. From a Jewish standpoint, it's not having any effect. So in fact, all you're doing is you're just mutilating. And, you know, this tells you something, though, about these, these false teachers. And, and I, I'm, I'm always careful. I don't want to be apologetic for false teachers, okay? But I do want to say this. They were willing to do what they believed. That a lot of times when we read about the early church and people that associate with Christians and some of them taught false things, they were affiliating not with the dominant popular group. They were affiliating with the people who were looked down upon. They were affiliating with the people that were going to be you know, thrown into prison and killed. And again, that's one of the problems with false teaching is that the person who's teaching it may really believe it's true. It's not like they're sitting around thinking about, hmm, how can I make something up to fool those Christians? That's one of the reasons you, you can't use as the clinching evidence that something is true because the person was so sincere. As someone has said before me, you can be sincerely right and you can be sincerely wrong. Sincerity tells you the person really believes it and really means it, but it doesn't make it true. And so Paul is using this very strong language because he's trying to protect these people. And you've got to know that Paul has dealt with these Judaizers for a long time. And it's almost like at this point in his ministry and, you know, 10, 15, 20 years of, of, of dealing with the Judaizers, that in a sense he knows, like, I, I'm not really going to convince any of them. They're, they're, they believe what they believe. And it's, I, I can't help them. But I can protect the Christians. I can protect the ones that I've invested in. I can protect the ones that can be led astray. And so that's what he does. And see, what, what I believe is missing, is what's missing is, is this changed heart. Remember, you, you know the true gospel is because, because you've been changed. And one of the things that's been changed is your, is your heart has been changed. One of the things that's been changed is that you know in your life is, is the presence of God's holy love. This love that, that wars against our, our human nature. Our human nature that, that thinks about either mine or you know, the ones who are like me. The, 
this, this human nature that, that is, is just about surviving or acquiring, and all of that, it goes, it goes against that. And he's saying, the true gospel will make you more like this every day. Not perfectly like this. I wish, I really would do wish I could perfectly embody all of this. But you know that it's there. You know you've been changed. And you know God is still working with you. So Paul can confidently say about these false teachers is not only is their teaching false, but the evidence that their teaching is false is because it's not resulting in a heart that's the heart of God. You see, you can get all the actions right. You can, you can attend all the services. You can do everything, but it's not about that. You know, we're going to go to Next Step Homeless Shelter. You, you, can, you can go there. You can take care of people. As Paul says in another letter, you can, you can give up your body to be burned. But if you don't have love, if your heart hasn't been changed, it's nothing. To God, it's nothing. Oh, people might worship you. People might love you. People might build a statue in honor of your great sacrifice. But for God, it's about our changed heart. Well, Paul then takes a little, little field trip. And he says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh. Remember, part of what these Judaizers were doing was they were, they were kind of putting out their credentials this is why you should listen to us. This is why what we're saying is right. And Paul's saying, I have more. I have more than them a reason to be. You want to see my resume? Let me show you just the highlights. He says, I'm circumcised. I was circumcised on the eighth day because that's when good Jewish boys were circumcised, on the eighth day. He said, I'm of the people of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. And he seems to be indicating like, I'm not the first one in my family to decide to do this. Like, no. I'm, I'm, this, is, this is my family's heritage. We've been true to these traditions. And on top of it, he says, I'm a he says, as to the law, a Pharisee. So he's gone and he's studied. He's, he's gone through the rigors of, of becoming a Pharisee and, and, he's, and, he's, and he's made it. He says, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. He says, you want to know how serious I took my Jewishness? I took it so seriously that there was a time in my life that I wanted to wipe you out because I saw you as an abomination, as a perversion of what God's plan was. 
That's my zeal. And he says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, we know Paul, and we know Paul isn't the kind that would have said, I was blameless then. In the context, this is saying that that's how he felt about himself. That he felt he was keeping the law perfectly. He was blameless. There's an old church tradition, which I wish were true, because it's kind of a cool story if it were true. I'm not saying it is true, but I'm just bringing it up here because I think it gives you insight into Paul's mindset. But um, the story of the rich young ruler. You guys remember this story? The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and um, you know, says, you know, I've kept all the commandments. Kept them perfectly. What else do I need to do? And you guys remember what Jesus says, right? He says, sell everything you have. Follow me. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, follow me. He says, he goes away. The the early church tradition is, that's Paul. That's Paul before he's a Christian. That, that he, he had heard about this great teacher, Jesus, and he respected him enough to go and want his affirmation. Right? You know when people ask you for advice, when they're not really asking for advice, they're asking for your affirmation? Because when you try to give them advice that goes against what they want to do, then they kind of get upset at you. Well, the rich young ruler wasn't asking. He wasn't asking for, for advice. He wanted, like, I think what he wanted Jesus to do, which would be awesome if Jesus did this, but I think what he wanted Jesus to do is go, you are, you need to be on my team. You're like, you're an all-star. Come on, man. Um, let me figure out how I can plug you in somewhere because you are great. You're awesome. I mean, it would be great if that was the case. You know, God looks down at you and says, you really need to be on my team. You're so smart. You're so talented. I really need you. But of course, that goes against everything we know about the gospel. It's not about, you know, how awesome we are in God selecting us. It's about His grace. But there's, there's, the, there's the thinking that, that if that's not Paul, that's Paul's mindset. That he couldn't wrap his head around there being anything else because he was already doing everything that his culture, his faith, his society expected of him. He was already doing it better than anybody else. And Paul really has everything here. He's got, you know, he's, he's, he's got means, he's wealthy, he has education, he has power, he has everything. But then he says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, 
For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. What Paul is saying And we know from his story how this happens, how he encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus. But what he's saying is, this is how my life's been changed. My life's been changed because everything I valued, everything I valued, everything I thought was at the top of the list is now not even on the list. It's not that knowing Christ has has moved up the list, And now Jesus is on top and then I got all my other things below it. No, they're rubbish. Unless you're a sculptor who uses rubbish to make, you know, sculptures, what do we, the rest of us do with rubbish? We throw it away. We get rid of it. And I know there's the show hoarders and people who keep stuff. But, we get rid of rubbish. We, we get in our ideas that what Paul's talking about, oh, he's got his priorities different now. Jesus is number one, and, you know, and, all, and he's got his priorities different. No. He counts them as loss. That's like an accounting term that he's using there. He counts them as rubbish. That's actually a nicer way of saying what the Word actually says. And I can't really say it in church because some people will be mad at me. Um, It's rubbish. You see, one of the things the Gospel changes about us is it changes how we value everything. And see, Paul didn't just He wasn't like, oh, I'm willing, I'm willing, Jesus, if you want this stuff, it's all yours. I'm willing, and then he sits back passively. No, he he actively goes and does things that puts everything at risk, and in fact, he loses all of these things. He gave it up. it should remind us of something that we read in chapter 2 when we read about Jesus. And it talked about how Jesus emptied himself. See, Paul is following that same parallel here. He's saying, in Jesus' experience, which is way better, way more, way more awesome than mine, the Son of God took on flesh came like us. In my experience, I was the, you know, the Pharisee of Pharisees. And I I gave it up. I gave it up for the cause of Christ. But I want you to see what then becomes the valuable thing in his life the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. It's not the surpassing worth of knowing about Jesus my Lord. No. He's saying knowing Jesus. He's talking about a relationship. And he's saying that is more valuable than anything else, that everything else looks like rubbish compared to that. If we're being changed, if we're being transformed, this doesn't sound weird to us. Again, we may be really bad at it, but it's who we want to be. It's what we're trying to do. It's what we're aspiring to do. And there may be all kind of things that, that we let in and that other things in our life that, that, that kind of push us and move us in other directions. But this is it. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ. You see, what Paul's not going to say here, which he says in other places, is that when we get this knowing Christ right, all the other things take on a different value. I now value my family differently. I value my friends differently because I value them because of I've placed the proper thing as having the surpassing worth, which is Jesus Christ. He actually helps make my family relationships better. He helps make my friends' relationships better. He makes everything else that I do better because I got that right. But I don't even do it just to make it better. I could, I could lose all of those relationships if that's what following Christ is the demand in my life. But there's the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. It's just, it's, it's, I, I just don't know, like, there's certain points when I get into, you know, Scripture and understanding things and trying to express them and trying to help people who are struggling with, you know, you know they don't have, you know, they're, they're, they want to start from the point of joy. They don't have joy. And then you always bring it down to, well, do you have Jesus? And is your relationship to Jesus, is there, is it, do you see it as having surpassing value? Or is it just kind of a thing? It's an important thing, but it's just kind of a thing. Paul continues and he says, after he says the righteousness from God that depends on faith, and then he says, and to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He says to be found in Him. And he uses the word righteousness. And he's using the word knowing. And all of these words point toward a right relationship. 
It's not just having a relationship. It's having a right relationship. It's to know Him. It's one of the reasons as, as Christians we, you know, we, we do things like pray and we study God's Word. We don't study God's Word because that's what good Christians do. We don't pray because that's what good Christians do. We study God's Word because it's God speaking to us. And if I want to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, I need to listen to Him speak. And so I want to be in His Word. Why do I pray? The same reason. Because if, if, if I want to have a relationship with God, I need to, I need to talk. To say what's going on. Express my feelings, my frustrations, my concerns, my worries, my hopes, my joys. It's a relationship with Christ. That's what the true gospel does. You see, a lot of people want, they want to think of righteousness only in terms of, of like the final judgment on us. Like, you know, when, when people think about like, you know, that, that I'm now righteous, when I become a Christian, that I'm righteous, they only want to think about it as like, okay, when, you know, when I die and I, you know, I stand before God, He's going to see me in the righteousness of Christ. And that's all they want to think about. By the way, that's true and that's wonderful. But that's not a full understanding of righteousness. Righteousness isn't, oh, Jesus, thank you for saving me. I'll see you in heaven. You know, see you when I get there. I'll be sure to say hi. No. It's, it's a relationship that began the day you called Him Lord and should be continuing every day and every moment. Hence. It's, it's not, I'll see you someday. It's like you're here with me right now. Then he ends, he says, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And see, this is, this is the thing, like, the values, our values change. How we value everything changes. We, we want this to know Christ. We want to be in the right relationship and we want to identify with Him. And we want to identify with Him in every way that we can. And, and what Paul is, is talking about here, he's, you know, at first we're like, oh yeah, okay, I get it. Um, I like this first part, um, that I may know Him. I, I like that. I like to say things like, Jesus is my best friend. Okay? And I like to say, I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I like to say those things, so I'm good with that. Um, oh, power of the resurrection. Oh, power's good. You know, I, I'm good with power. But then he says, share his sufferings. Oh, uh, you know, I, two out of three, it's pretty good, right? 
I mean, if you're a baseball player and you get one hit every three times at bat, you're an all-star. So with Jesus, I'm going double that. Two out of three. Paul, in no way, and I don't know how people read the Bible this way, but somehow they do and they teach it, that, that somehow that being a Christian is supposed to make you know, the rest of your life like a, like a Disney movie. Oh, there's going to be ups and downs, but most of the time there's music and singing and everybody's happy. Where is that? How does that jive with Paul? How does he jive with what he just told the Philippians? You're going to suffer too. It's coming. And what's happening here is I think we see throughout this passage, we see three things. The part about knowing Him. You know, we identify with Christ because we know Him. We have this relationship. We experience His, his love in our lives. We experience His leadership. And we also are expressing it. So we, we got that. And when it talks about the power of the resurrection, it's not talking about, oh, now you're going to have some superpower. Now you're going to be able to have you know, laser vision and you know, kill all your enemies. No. Your life will be changed. That which was dead is now alive. That which was prone to live for itself or to live for just its own kind is now extended to love and to serve others. Your life has changed. And the idea of sharing in the suffering talks about that, that commitment. That that, that attitude that Jesus had that, again, we read about in chapter 2, that we read that Timothy had last week and Epaphroditus. And now we're reading about Paul. That there's this level of commitment that says, I, I know to, to turn the values upside down or better said, right side up. To value Christ and knowing Christ above all, I know that's going to put me at odds with the world. And not just the world from far away, it's going to put me at odds with, with some people in my family. It's going to put me at odds with some people at my workplace. It's going to put me at odds with people who are my friends because I'm not living according to their value systems. And maybe they won't ever attack me, but they might feel sorry for me. Oh, you know, poor you. You don't have all the things that you, you should have. It's the sharing and the suffering. It's that level of commitment of being willing to do whatever it means to identify Christ and if necessary, face death. This is how much Paul believes. You've got to understand, someone who's willing to do what Paul did, 
It has to be more than just, oh, I, I understand this. This all makes sense. The facts go together. You have to know that he knows his life has been transformed. That he's been changed. It's not just true because it's true, but it's true because he's experienced it. And because he's experienced it, he knows that no matter what the world throws at him, he knows that no matter what life puts in front of him, that, that the treasure he has in knowing Christ, and Christ is not just a, on a, on a, you know, a compilation of facts, but it's a personal relationship with Christ that has changed his life. Because he knows that, he can always have joy can always have joy. The true gospel, it's important. It's important that, we, that we, we come to grips with this, that it's not just about believing the right things. It's are we experiencing Christ in our lives? Are we being changed more and more into the image of Christ? Again, if it's a if it's a race and being like Jesus is you know the end of the marathon, the best of us are going to only make it to the first aid station in this life. But we keep running and we keep striving, and God promises through His Spirit to keep changing keep changing us more and more into the image of His Son. Let's pray.